Welcome to the Sisterhood & Co. podcast. I'm your host, Harriet Blevins. This podcast is designed to empower, educate, and encourage women of all ages and stages of life in their walk with God. Our goal and intent is to provide you with the best content and topics relevant to your lives as Christians. We will have conversations with other leaders all along the way and discuss topics all of us want and need to hear. I'm so happy you're here, and I hope you enjoy the journey with me. I just want to thank you all. I want to thank you all for being here, for coming with energy and expectation. Everybody that I talk with this morning, and, and you know, we can feel it in the room, there, there's a pull on, I want to hear a word from the Lord. And so, as one who's offering that, as Harriet likes to say, the fresh bread, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your pull on the grace of God and the anointing of God and the word of God because the Lord does want to speak to us. And we're taking the entire semester and we're going over the life of Moses. And it's so powerful. There, there are so many elements part of the life of Moses for the first coming of Christ, for the second coming of Christ, for the revelation of all of time and history and the, the, the process of how God works and moves throughout the course of history and through his people Israel, through his people that are now grafted into Israel, the true vine Jesus, into the, and the church is grafted into Israel as Ephesians tells us to one new man, that there is such expression of who God is. And, and who God is revealed through the life of Moses and how he reveals himself to the life of Moses. The first time we see Yahweh Rapha, the Lord God, our healer, revealed to Moses, it's when Jesus says, I, or the, the Lord says, I am that I am, revealed to Moses. It is when he says, I'm the Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, sending my love to thousands of generations. That is revealed to Moses, and we're going to dive into all of that. One thing I do want you to do, because it can be a familiar story, and we're, and you know, familiarity sometimes breeds um, unbelief. It's like when Jesus walked into a town in Nazareth, and, and the people were like, well, isn't this Joseph's son? And in that presence of unbelief he could only do a few miracles just a little bit of miracles because it was such a heaviness of unbelief because they were familiar with him and let us not ever be so familiar with the things of God that we are not uh, encountered afresh and anew by his word and by the stories of his word and the mystery of his word and the beauty of his word and how um, he works throughout the course of a person's life and history it's just powerful so that's why we're going to go back through it just a little bit that familiar story of Moses. I'm going to go through all these little things. And then there are a few things that I wanted to pull out, particularly in this message. Now, I believe that each one of these messages will probably be um, a little bit different with a little uniqueness because Harriet, in her beautiful, wonderful self, has given a very open-handed approach to how to offer. So whatever the Lord has put upon each of the ones who are sharing's heart, um, there's, there's freedom, there's a spaciousness to be able to minister that. And so I just want to honor her and thank her for her gracious generosity to share this, this platform um, with the other voices and um, because we know she is a powerful teacher of the Word of God. And so um, thank you. Thank you for letting me be a part of it. Thank you, Gina, for opening. What a beautiful word you had that we get to also celebrate with our Nicole, who is over in Australia. I mean, I, I'm going to tell you, I can't even... 
I can't even, I can't even express the words of how excited I feel for her, how happy I feel for her, how I know that this is a manifestation of prayer. That's why I was like, let's put those pictures up because that is an answer to prayer. That is an answer to prophetic declaration. And so that's something that we can tangibly hold on to today. The Lord doesn't just do it for Nicole. And even though it was delayed from her timing, she, she was supposed to be, here, be there at the birth of Luca in June of 2020. But 2020. But two years later, over two years later, she's there now. And she's getting the joy of that little curly-headed, oh my gosh, just eat him up. Precious. Okay, well, let me get into the word. I'm going to be pulling from Hebrews, from Acts 7, from, of course, Exodus, speaking about Moses. Um, so get your Bibles ready. We're going to go right into Hebrews 11, 23 through 28. I'm going to just speak. We know this is the hall of faith. And Moses has some verses at the end of Hebrews 11. Verse 24, by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God, rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as a greater value than the treasures of Egypt. And let me tell you, Egypt had some treasures. I mean, we, we know about King Tutankhamun, King Tut. We know him as King Tut. He was like a boy king. And the treasures that were in his tomb that were found, I mean, it was phenomenal in our perspective but minor in the perspective of Egypt so the the riches of Egypt he said for the sake of Christ because he was looking ahead for his reward he had an eternal perspective last year I talked about or last semester I talked about eternal perspective and how critical that is in our life with God by faith he left Egypt not learning not fearing the king's anger he persevered because he saw him who is invisible. He saw the invisible God in the burning bush. He saw him face to face, the Bible says. By faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood so that he, the destroyer of the, so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. Would not touch. By faith, the people of Israel passed through passed through, God made a path, the Red Sea onto dry land. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, when the people were, who were not called according to his purpose, they were drowned. So the life of Moses is such that he was God's chosen vessel for that time in space and history. And I like to say this because it is true. Each one of us is birthed into the earth for such a time as this. We, we use that reference from the book of Esther, and it is a moment in time that we have something to offer that no one else of time or history can offer. No one else has your fingerprint, your voice, your DNA. No one. No one has the expression of God's heart upon their lives in the same way that you do. You have something unique of God to show to the earth. Now, of course, Moses, his life was very strategic in the timing of the Lord. The Israelites had been 400 years in captivity, in slavery, and then there was a moment when the Lord said, I've got to break in. It's very much like that scripture that talks about the Kairos moment of God, the appropriate appointed time of God when God sent forth his son into the earth. There are moments in time and space in history that the Lord breaks in. 
with power and with might, with supernatural reality. So there's choices of faith, establishing us in these true principles. We look at the center, which is one man. We see him in history, depicted even in our own government. If you, if you go to the Capitol right now, the United States of America, also in the Library of Congress, Moses is depicted because he is the lawgiver. Because as much as people want to erase this reality, America was birthed upon the principles that Isaiah says that he is our lawgiver, our king, and our judge, the three branches of government. That is the truth. What's interesting about those 23 pictures that are in marble above the Congress is that Moses is at the very center facing forward. All the other pictures uh, across time and history from Thomas Jefferson, Napoleon, other, play, other people, leaders, world leaders throughout the course of history are pictured with profile, all looking toward Moses, the one who is the lawgiver. Moses is significant in the heart of God. His name is mentioned 750 times in the Old Testament. That's a lot. It's 80 times mentioned in the New Testament. The Old Testament is called the law of Moses. The New Testament called the law of Christ, which Christ came to fulfill. He is the fulfillment of the law. God had deep affection for Moses, and he spoke to him as two friends face to face. Just giving you a few little tidbits about Moses. Even God offered to destroy faithless Israel twice on two occasions. But Moses' response as an intercessor influenced and permeated God's heart. He responded rightly before the Lord. He responded as a mediator. He responded as a type and shadow of Jesus who said, let me stand right here, God, in the middle of this. Now, not always, there were times, you know, <laughs> Moses talking to his friend God said, these are your people. I'm done with them. They're grumbling and complaining, and I can't hardly bear it anymore. But God had Moses' back. He was his friend. Like Moses, you know, we, we, we use this term in sisterhood. We had those t-shirts made that had six on the back because we say, we've got your six. We've got your back. It's a military term. Like, I'm watching out for you. God had Moses' back. I mean, nobody should be going against the friend of God. Even his sister Miriam, when she spoke against Moses, she got leprosy. Like, maybe we might want to think twice before we start speaking ill of the friends of God or the leaders of God. It's very important for us to recognize Moses did all things throughout the journey. He, he did some wrong things. I mean, my goodness, at the very beginning, he kills an Egyptian. But there was a call to justice in his heart. But his execution of that was not God's will or God's plan. And so it took 40 years in the wilderness to get him to a place to cultivate that intercessory call of being Israel's deliverer. 40 years on the backside of the desert for a moment when the Lord to break in Moses' life can really be kind of broken down into three segments. He lived 120 years. So the first 40 years, we could say Moses the prince. He was in the palace. He had all of the, the uh, education of Egypt. He grew in stature in that whole realm, understood that culture. And then at some point was ignited 
with justice in his heart that the Israelites that he knew he was a brother of had pain. And so that intercessory call was inside of him, but it was not fully cultivated in maturity, which is why he sort of lashed out. He was trying to do something in his own strength when the Lord was like, I want to cultivate my strength in you to be the intercessor and the deliverer that I've called you to be. You know, the truth is we've all sinned and come short of God's glory, but God still met Moses and he still meets us to use him. He chose him. He loved him. He wanted to be with him and he waited on him. He waited on him to be ready. So what was happening in Egypt? God's chosen people. As Harriet mentioned last week, you know, Joseph was a powerful leader. He brings his family, the household of Israel, to Goshen, to the Nile Delta. Israel is saved out of famine, rescued because of Joseph's stature and prominence in that nation. And then Israel begins to grow into a very large nation. The new Pharaoh, however, 400 years later, did not know anything about Joseph. He's replaced by dark suspicion about the Israelites. This is a picture where leaders really should have a grasp of history. But Pharaoh did not. So he began to fear the Israelites and he enslaved them and put taskmasters over them. He instructed the Hebrew midwives to kill the male babies, as she mentioned last week. Soldiers to toss toddler boys to and under in the Nile River so they could be eaten by crocodiles. It, it was in this context that Moses was born. He was a slave. He was born into oppression and murder. But yet, his family felt there was something special about this baby. We see it in Hebrews 11. We see it in Exodus 2, 1 and 2, where they saw that Moses was a beautiful child. Now, the truth is, every mother would look at their child and say, good gosh, this is the most beautiful baby I have ever seen in my entire life. But what this speaks of as it's referenced in Exodus in Acts 7 where Stephen speaks to the Sanhedrin where it's referenced in Hebrews is that there was a mark of God upon him and somehow because they were a faithfully devoted people they recognized their prophetic visitation they recognized that there was something significant about Moses so they, they said we've got to do what we can to cultivate a space that this baby is saved. So he was in that faith environment for three months, and then he was set out on his own faith journey at three months old. <laughs> but the Lord made a way. He provided his older sister Miriam to keep watch over him. He provided a cry just at the right time when Pharaoh's daughter would hear divine providence divine providence. And as, as, as uh, Harriet mentioned last week, Moses is an Egyptian name. In the Egyptian form, it means son. From the Hebrew meaning, which also is an expression, we can pull both of those things, which means drawn out. That's our traditional kind of perspective. And I believe that both of these perspectives, the Hebrew understanding as well as the understanding that Moses means son, in Egypt is something that the Lord wants to show to us, to reveal to us about his life. You know, it's interesting to me that the place of divine providence where Pharaoh's daughter rescued Moses out of the Nile was the very place where the babies were killed. At the very place of 
murder and desolation is where rescue happened. I mean, is anything too difficult for God? No. Pharaoh's daughter recognized, of course, that he was a Hebrew baby, most likely because he was a circumcised child. Hebrew children are circumcised on the eighth day. Miriam says, I can get you a nursemaid. So his own mother comes to the palace to nurse him. Talk about divine providence. Talk about the orchestration of God's touch throughout the course of his life. Presumably, she was able to teach him about Yahweh. Whisper in his ear, hey, you, you know you're really not Egyptian. You really are the household of Levi. And let me tell you what that means. It means you are a priest unto your God. You are called to serve him. At the same time, he's being schooled with the Egyptian school system, which would have been the envy of the world at the time. Other nations sent their children to be schooled in Egypt. Moses would have had a mastery of hieroglyphic writing. He, in Acts 7 says, was skilled in all knowledge. He grew up in the palace. So he was caught between two worlds. He is adopted. He is son. But also his mother is raising to him, saying, you belong to God. You are not an Egyptian. You are a Hebrew. You are the offspring and the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So when the Lord said that to him in the burning bush, it was not foreign to him. Because it was cultivated in him. You belong to Yahweh, the God of our fathers. Hebrews reveals that Moses was pulled in two different ways. He recognized the pull of Egypt and he chose God. But there was a pull. There's always a pull. In Hebrews, we also see that he made a choice to say, I will be known for what I truly am. So he embraced his true identity. Now it took him... 80 years, maybe beyond, but he chose God. He said, choosing rather is shown in verse 25, because faith demands a choice, faith takes a stand, considering, the, the quote is considering, which meanings, means that he was thinking through carefully. Instead of joining, enjoying sin for a season, the passing pleasures of Egypt, he considered and he weighed his life before Yahweh. And he said, I want this one. I want this one. And recognizing, Hebrews 11 tells us this. He recognized that he would be treated like his brothers, the Hebrew nation. He recognized that he would be considered reproach. He understood this in his choice to be fully given to God. I mean, think about our world right now. If we choose to stand for Jesus, are we not a reproach? But there is no other choice because as the disciples said, who else, where else can I go? Only you, Jesus, have the words of life. Only you are eternal life. So the motivation factor we see, even from Moses' context and for ours, is that of looking to the reward that we are sojourners along this road. The payoff with Christ is better than the payoff with the reward. Now, what's the reward? Maybe it's the hope of heaven, the hope that's held out in the gospel. But ultimately, it is about the presence of the living God dwelling within us. That we too, like Moses, can see him face to face. 
we get to enter into the Holy of Holies. You know, all through Exodus, it talks about the tabernacle of Moses and what all of those elements mean. And getting into that place in the Holy of Holies, we have open and free access. Jesus said, come boldly before my throne of grace. Receive the mercy You know, if if Revelation 4 talks about there being an emerald rainbow around his throne, that emerald rainbow speaks of the mercy of God. His throne is enthroned and circled, encircled by mercy. This is how we can approach God and live. Because of Jesus. Because of the finished work of the cross. But God let Moses get his education in Egypt. He understood the culture of Egypt. He had exposure firsthand to Egypt. So he had a he had an awareness of how to walk into Egypt and counter that culture. We can't be so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good, but we have to be heavenly minded so that we are earthly good. But we have to understand the culture around us. We have to understand how to offer. When Paul says, I've become all things to all people, that we're not standing stoic and judgmental because that's not who our God is. Our God is like merciful, gracious, compassionate, love to a thousand generations. That is our approach. Biblical faith chooses God's plan over culture, but it also chooses God's priorities and can recognize the difference. In Acts 7, Stephen, oh, beautiful Stephen. I, I, I love Stephen when I think about him being, giving this, this beautiful proclamation of the history of Israel to the Sanhedrin to try to give them some kind of revelation but their hearts were so hearts were so hardened they could not see it so hardened in fact then that he gets stoned but in the midst of that Jesus stands up for him and the countenance of God is upon him that's just a little side note but I love Stephen but Stephen says of Moses that there was deep revelation he knew that God had called him to deliver Israel We get to choose every day to fully give ourselves to God, that he is our portion in this life and our very great reward. You know, Moses penned Psalm 90, which I also love Psalm 90, but Psalm 90 at the very beginning, it says, oh Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout the generations. He he was a nomad for the whole of his life after the place of the palace. When he chose God out of the palace, then he was a nomad. But he said of the Lord, you have been our dwelling place. He understood the presence of God. He also accepted, although initially reluctantly, his calling, his purpose, his mission to show who God is. We have to know this calling as well, to show the truth of who God is, because people know that God exists, but they have no idea of his character, of his nature, of his goodness. People throw all kinds of spaghetti on God and say, well, that was probably God's fault because they do not know how God interacts with his people. That's, that's what our calling and our mission is, is to speak the truth of who he is. But at age 40, of course, Moses goes, intervenes with the Israelites, and the second 40 years, Moses is a shepherd. He's in the wilderness. So the focus of his purpose in the wilderness is a time of meditation upon God, a time of working out the places in his heart, the things that he knows are innately part of him, that he's, he's for justice, he knows he's called, he knows there's something about his life that's unique. He understands that he was rescued from 40 years before 
uh, a terrible death as an infant. He understood that, but he did not understand how to offer his very life to God. So through these 40 years of wilderness, the Lord begins to cultivate leadership in him, cultivate maturity in him, cultivate his shepherding heart in him. Now, the truth is, he's shepherding sheep on Mount Horeb, on the mountain of God, for his father-in-law Jethro, in the Sinai Desert. Now, don't y'all know, that is like a desolate place. I've been to Israel, and just looking out across the mountains, driving through from Tel Aviv uh, over to Jerusalem, different places, it's like just mountains of desert, you know? It's beautiful in places, but there are places in that are desert. So he's on the backside of the desert, and God says, I'm going to break in and encounter you. Now, you know, sometimes we feel like we're tucked away and we're in obscurity, but God has your address. He knows how to get to you. He knows how to speak to you, and he can break in at any time with a willing heart. So obscurity is okay. It's trusting the process because he who is faithful to begin a good work, he will complete it. We can trust that. And God's timing is not always our timing. Now we would have loved for Nicole to have been able to be at little Luca's birth. That would have been our timing. But God's timing was the right now. Was these moments because there was something that he had set apart for joy to fill her up. For even two years of prayers and of faith. Now, that is how he works in our lives. God can use an ordinary experience to speak to us in an extraordinary way. It possibly could have been a familiar thing to see things burning in the desert. I mean, it was a very hot place. But Moses recognized that this burning bush was different, and he made the decision to turn aside and see. I mean, that's recorded. He made the decision to go and encounter something is happening here. I'm drawn to this. What is happening? I don't understand. So this sustained supernatural burning, a burning bush that was yet not consumed, it's like an expression of the fire of God within us. You know, the Lord says he is an all-consuming fire. The fire of his love. It's, it's, it's sort of like the picture of the disciples on the road to Emmaus when they encountered the words of Jesus. Not seeing him, not understanding it was him. But then said, did not our hearts burn within us when he was speaking to us? So there was something in this burning bush that was causing a burning heart. Interestingly, also, this... Most likely, scholars believe that this burning bush was made of acacia, was acacia wood. And the Ark of the Covenant that housed God's presence is made, made of acacia wood. So the Lord, the Lord doesn't waste any little detail, any little element. Every single specific detail down to the, the number of hairs on your head, he knows. So again... The language from Hebrews gives us this insight. He endured 40 years of the process before he got to see the unseen. The unseen God he encountered. Because God had been getting him ready, drawing out leadership, he was ready for that moment. And he was leading sheep on the mountain of God. But he was in, the pre in, the, in an environment for the presence of God to be on the mountain of God. Now, what I love about this is that God spoke to him a personal word. 
he said, Moses, Moses. I mean, when the Lord calls your name, there's something different about that, right? It's very much like Mary in the garden didn't recognize Jesus, didn't recognize him. Where have you laid him? And then he says, Mary. And as soon as he said Mary, she knew this is Jesus. So there was an encounter that was personal. And remember, in Egyptian, Moses, his name means son. It means drawn out. I'm drawing you out of the wilderness. I am speaking to you as a son. I'm declaring to you your name. He gets then an instructive word from God. He gets the personal word, and then he gets an instructive word. And he says, go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. So there are times when God creates circumstances in your life that do not make sense so that you can hear him when he calls your name. Moses responds with reverence and awe. He even hides his face. He's like, I I cannot look upon this one. But he has an encounter with God. I, I mean, the text is fairly long. God's given him all of this information. He says, tell Pharaoh that I want my people to be let go so they can come and worship me. And Moses says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? So his, the Lord's response to him is, I will be with you. You know, it's not, well, let me just tell you who you are. Let me help you get, get, get yourself all worked up. He's like, I've already given you your name. I've already said you're my son, and I've drawn you out. I've already told you who you are. And now I'm saying, I am with you, and I will be with you. Powerful. So then he says, well, what about the Israelites? So he says, first, what if Pharaoh says something? Then he says, well, what what if the Israelites, what do they say? Who, Who will I say that the God of our father sent me? What is your name? And then God says this most powerful revelation that carries throughout the the whole of Scripture. Jesus references it as himself. He says, you say, I am who I am. I am has sent you. Which means he's always existed. The same yesterday, today, and forever. Who was and is and is to come. He reveals manifold things about the excellences excellences of his being and the perfections of his character through this revelation. This encounter is considered a theophany or probably more accurately a Christophany. It's a revealed moment when Jesus is seen in the Old Testament. We see in John 8, 58, Jesus says, However, Jesus says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Jesus says of himself, I am the I am. I am. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him. If it was only that Jesus meant to say he existed before Abraham, he would have said, I was. But since Jesus has always existed, the response, that response would be insufficient. The God, the Son of God is beyond time. He is, I am. This is powerful when we think about it. Uh, he, they knew that he was declaring himself to be Yahweh. When he spoke the truth of this from the burning bush and also in John 8. It's a picture that is revealed. Jesus is the revealed person of the Father. He is the revelation of the Father 
to mankind, to humankind. So the power of encounter with the living God in this moment, we, we can't even comprehend. And yet in Exodus 4, he, he, he goes to God again. What if they do not believe me and say, well, the Lord did not appear to you. So then he says, okay, Moses, what's in your hand? Miracles originating from heaven. Harriet mentioned that last week, the staff that was in his hand. So then Moses, is, but then Jesus says, I mean, the Lord says accurately, but then the Lord says, what's in your hand? And he shows him, I've got you. I will show miracles through you. But Moses' next opposition is his speech. Now, this one is profound. Verse 10. And then God says, well, who made your mouth? Who made your mouth? I've, I've got you, Moses. You're a Levite. But Moses pleads with the Lord, send someone else. Now, interestingly to me, in Acts 7.22, it says of Moses that he was educated with all the wisdoms of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. So that's how the Lord viewed him. That was revelation given to Stephen. That's how the Lord viewed him. But his, his view of himself was, I, I can't do it. I, 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 really what it was was I don't want to do it. So the perception he had of himself was not that which the Lord spoke of him. One reason additionally that I think that this may be a bigger deal than simply not believing God could give him the words and why the scripture says that God's anger in that moment, his anger, God's anger burned against Moses. I mean, that, that's tough language, right? But I think that one of this reason is that in Moses, God have, could have had both deliverer and priest. He was of the household and lineage of Levi. But he did not want to accept that portion. And so God made a way, as he does, provided Aaron, his brother, also of the household of Levi. But it was Aaron's staff that's in the Holy of Holies in the Ark of the Covenant, budding, not Moses's. Initially, I feel that God was calling Moses to both of these roles to be even a more full type and shadow of Jesus, who is our deliverer, who is our priest, who is our king. You know, in fact, in Jesus' life, he's from the household of Judah. He's from the lineage of the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's from Judah, but yet he is our high priest. So the interesting thing is that he, Jesus, has, goes to John the Baptist, who is of the lineage of Levi, and says, I need you to baptize me. I need you to baptize me to fulfill all righteousness. So there was a prophetic act in the natural to declare that he was the priest for all time. That's another picture right there. God said to Aaron, he can do this. He can be the mouthpiece, but I will give you the words. He gives the words to Moses. So the belief in that day was Pharaoh was a god, sustained the gods of Egyptian rituals, and God sends these ten plagues to, to confront these systems, the false worship structures of Egypt, and deliver his people out. 
Now, I've got them all listed here. Water to blood, frogs, lice, flies, sickness of the cattle, boils, hail, locusts, darkness, the death of the firstborn of every Egyptian house. It's really bad. It's a really bad situation. But just a couple I'll highlight. The frogs, it is a confrontation to an Egyptian god, Hectite, which is a woman's body with a frog head who was credited with being the one who oversaw the midwives, interestingly. It is said that she's the one that blew the breath in the nostrils of the baby. And the Lord confronts that false, false God. And then darkness, which is a direct confrontation of the sun god, Ray. Full darkness, like is never ever comprehended on the earth. But each plague, it builds faith in Moses. And he leads them to the path of the Red Sea. Then Pharaoh pursues them. Now these Israelites, they're seeing the power of God, but they still have a slavery mentality. They have a victim mentality. They're entitled because they're like, where's the, where's the meat? I mean, I should have stayed in Egypt. There's a whole issue that's going on through them. It's a cyclical narrative of complaining and tempers and punishment and murmurs. Even in the midst of the revelation that the Lord is fighting for them. Now, it is easy for us to look at the children of Israel and be like, what is wrong with you people? (laughs) Like, the Red Sea is open to you. But we are the same. It's human nature. And when you've had 400 years of slavery, you don't realize that you are a son of Abraham. You do not know your heritage, your lineage, your birthright. And the third 40 years, and I'm just going to go quickly over this. I don't have time to go into it, but it is Moses the lawgiver. On Mount Sinai, he was given the law and the instructions of God for his chosen people. The instruction was also a picture of Jesus. All of the expression of worship that's set up in the tabernacle of Moses and a picture of Jesus. We see the beauty of Jesus throughout the tabernacle and the approach to God, especially in light of his fulfillment of his life, death, and resurrection. And it is, at the end of the age, the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb that is sung. It's so powerful. In chapter 16, it's just little highlights throughout the course of that time. Chapter 16, God provides manna. He says that in this way, I will test them to see if they will follow my instructions. He says, you have manna. It will be there in the morning. Gather it for the day. Do not store it because it will not be good for you. It will not go good for you. He does it this way because he wants to test them. Are they going to follow his instructions? So the key is that revelation comes in the wilderness if we hear his voice and follow his ways. If we don't add to, we are not religious. Religion adds to God's declaration. We don't have to go storing manna. We do what the Lord says and he's going to provide the next day and the next day and the next day and the next day because we honored him with obedience Moses also, he did not understand that his life was a picture and shadow of Jesus. He did not fully have this revelation. Here's another moment in time, the snapshot. He was instructed in Exodus 17.6 to strike the water to flow so that the Israelites could receive it. Now this was a picture of the crucifixion of Jesus. Jesus is known as the rock. He was struck 
for our transgressions, Isaiah 53, the chastisement of our peace was upon him. The, by his stripes, we have been healed. It was God who laid all of the iniquity and punishment upon him, his son. Once and for all, Romans said, once and for all. So in the second act, which is what kept Moses out of the promised land, he smote the rock again. But that was not the truth of God's word to Moses. He did that out of frustration. And we can be like, why, Lord, did you, did you not let Moses, your faithful one, go into the promised land? But it's because this was so important and vital to God. He, he basically shatters. He shatters the picture and the typology that God wants to do out of that act of disobedience, out of that act of frustration and response. It was a revelatory action that said something about Jesus that was not true. His actions said that the cross is not enough. He shattered the picture of the gospel message to this chosen generation entering the promised land, but also all the generations to follow. He entered into the entering into the promised land, stepping into the holy moment was through the word. The Lord said, speak the word and water will flow. The word is the washing of the water of the word that we get to enter through the word of God. The word is all you need. The water that you need is the word. Speak to the rock. But he was so frustrated. He did not in that moment even just take a hold of the simpler solution and directive. Instead of hearing the instruction of the Lord for the moment, he goes back to a previous way, a previous revelation, instead of what was needed for that moment. And frustration and offense often can cause us to be unable to hear and receive and respond to God's word for that moment. So it's so vital that our hearts are tender, that frustration does not dominate. It was real. He had reason to be frustrated, right? I mean, he did. We can look at it. He did. But we can't take that upon ourselves because the Lord is gracious. He's merciful. He continues to extend mercy, extend mercy, extend mercy. So Moses saying, I don't have to extend mercy. I'm sick of these people. And responding out of that, it shattered this beautiful picture that the Lord wanted to express of who Jesus is. Theology matters to God. A word out of season, out of timing, out of the alignment with the prophetic timing of God's plan to give instruction to what was unseen. We see in part and prophesy in part, Moses did not recognize his life was a picture and a shadow and a type of Christ, our deliverer. What we think, why well, I said theology matters to God, because what we think about God is, as Tozer says, the most important thing. Moses did not lose his internal place because he was unable to take the final journey in the natural realm into the promised land. We see it in Matthew 17 in the transfiguration. He's right there with Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration. He, Jesus, and Elijah. I mean, that's, that's powerful. Like he, he didn't lose his eternal place, but he did not receive the full reward, which would have been an expression for the generations of Jesus as well as entering into the promise of God in this hour, in this dark side of time. It's powerful. Moses did enter the extravagant light that seemed to the people as a darkness of God's glory and power. 
The other piece that's important for us to understand, I want to end with this. Chapter 19 and 20, we see that God wanted a kingdom of priests. He had told Moses for the very first instruction of the burning bush, tell Pharaoh to let his people go, that they would come out and worship their God, the God of their fathers, the true and living God. We also see it mentioned in 1 Peter 2 and in the book of Revelation. He has made us to be a kingdom of priests unto himself. But the people, they could not engage with the power, majesty, and might of God. They said, oh, no. All that right there is too much for me to understand, comprehend, and deal with. So why don't you go ahead and do it, Moses? Human nature always wants a priest ahead of us. But the Lord said, I want a priesthood. I want a people who are marked with my DNA as the great high priest. I want ones who will minister directly to my heart. So Moses, he did enter that light that seemed to the people as deep darkness. And he asked God to show him his glory. And I want to end with this verse. And in Exodus 34, God did. He took Moses into a safe spot, and he made his goodness pass by him, showing his back. But yet, interestingly, he spoke to Moses face to face. Like, I I don't even understand. But there is some paradox of the way that the Lord reveals himself to his people. But this speaks of revelation and relationship. But he said to Moses, okay, in the morning, which interestingly also, Lamentations 3 said, my mercies are new every morning. In the morning, you can enter into my mercy... And I will show you my glory. And when his glory passed by, what did it say? His name. It revealed his name. And his name was and is the Lord, the Lord. The Lord declared it to Moses. I am the Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, extending my love to thousands of generations. This is who I am. Show me your glory, Lord. The Lord says, I will. Meditate upon this.